This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for making it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code Candid Frame. We also have the support of Lynda.com, who with over 2,000 high-quality and engaging videos, provides a wide breadth of courses from beginner to advanced. Lynda.com is there to help you learn creative, software, and business skills to achieve your personal and professional goals. To take advantage of their 10-day free trial, visit lynda.com forward slash the candid frame. That's L-Y-N-D-A forward slash the candid frame. Though we can certainly admire the work of professional photographers, it's the part-time photographer who often inspires me the most. Besides the normal 9 to 5 and the demands of family, they are the ones who somehow find the time to make amazing photographs. They live their passions for image making and get past the many challenges that stop many of us. Ugo Che is a photographer who, while working in the IT industry, has succeeded in producing outstanding travel, landscape, and street photography. Though we can certainly learn from master photographers, I think all of us have something to learn from photographers like Ugo. We started our conversation by talking about his beginnings as a photographer. So first of all, thanks for having me here. And, uh, really appreciate that. Um, I started more or less as a kid uh, when my father, uh, he had a friend who used to, to travel to Japan. So once, once he went to Japan and my father asked, asked him to, to, bring, uh, to bring him a camera. So he brought back um, a Nikon or Nikon, how you want to pronounce it. Uh, Nikromat F2 with a set of lenses uh, that my father wanted. But my father ne- never really used that, so I started using that when I was a, a teen. And that was my introduction to, to photography, mostly shooting uh, slides uh, when I was on vacation, uh, my first uh, uh, trips alone, and so on. But, yeah, I always liked that, but I never really was into photography as, a, as an art form or, or as a kind of uh, profession. Uh, it all changed when I went with digital, basically, um, because, I don't know, probably just the fact that digital was so much easier uh, instead of having to uh, buy rolls, send them to a lab, get them back, and then uh, we used slides, so we used to project them on the wall and stuff like that. It was too, too much hassle. So digital was for me was a revelation, and um, uh, as you said, I I work nine to five. I have a, a full time job, and I have a full time job in uh, uh, in IT, information technology, computers. So you can say I'm a I'm a geek, <laughs> and I'm I'm not offended if people say that I'm a geek. Uh, so to me, digital technology and having your photos on a computer was something that I really it really connected with me because uh, now photography was something that was 
part of using computers in a way. And another thing was that I was uh, at the time, uh, like uh, maybe seven, eight years ago, going to many conferences, uh, meeting other developers. And there was this digital photography had become the hobby of choice of programmers. Every programmer out there was taking up digital photography. Everybody was going to conferences with a reflex, a DSLR. I said, hmm, interesting. Maybe I should get one. <laughs> so so that, that's how I started. And then it, it just went uh, on from that. Uh, it become, became more and more, from a hobby, it became more and more of a passion. And uh, that, that's where I'm where I am now. It seems that there are a lot of people who are who are into the technical, like the IT work, like you, that were really drawn to, to photography. Do you, do you think it was largely that the fact that it was um, the technical aspect that just made it sort of a natural progression from doing what you would normally do to computers to working with pixels? Was that, that, was that a big part of the attraction? I think it was, uh, it was not, maybe not so much a progression, but just the fact that, uh, in order to do digital photography, you had to have at least some level of proficiency with computers. So maybe some, some people were put off by having to, to use computers for photography. And for us, instead, it was just natural. So these two things tying so well together. That we, it's, it's no effort for us to, to do that. And technology and computer, computers, IT, uh, at that time, I mean, like in, uh, in the 2000s and, and so on was, was a lot also about the web. So we were working on the web. Mm-hmm. We were building the web. Right. It, it, it had already been built in, in great part where we kept building the web and building the web meant putting photography more and more online. So we knew how to take photos and we knew how to publish them. So when sites like Flickr came up, for us it was, oh, wow, that's what we do. So, (laughs) in a way. Well, one of the things that I appreciate about your work is that aesthetically they're really beautiful photographs. You make great use of light. Uh, Your composition is just just stellar. Did you find that learning the more aesthetic parts of photography to be more of a challenge for you? Um, not a challenge, but certainly something something different. Uh, I I always always appreciated art. Might be the fact that I I'm Italian. I live in Italy. I have a museum with great paintings in every city that I can go see so for me that's uh, like an, uh, an eye towards color towards light and composition and, and so on that is just something that we probably get with our milk when we grow up <laughs> mm. um so no, no, not much of a challenge it's certainly something something different i in part it was uh, a natural in part it was learned so uh, of course uh, when I, I started shooting more with digital uh, it was very much casual. I didn't really know what, what I was wanted to achieve and so on. But I, I had to study. I had to to learn something. I had to. I read books. One of the the best books. It's it's not actually a book. It's a whole series of books. 
of books, and it's Michael Freeman's uh, uh, series, uh, The Photographer's Side, The Photographer's Vision, The Photographer's Mind. Mm-hmm. I don't remember all of them. It's probably like four volumes. Uh, another very, I, I think, exceptional and very influential book, um, even though it talks so much about film, which I don't use, is um, Bruce Barnbaum's The Art of Photography. That's, a, that's an exceptional book, I think. So these are the two, some of them my main uh, influences, I think. Well, you live in a beautiful part of the world, and I know that oftentimes the, our, our immediate surroundings um, aren't always the thing that we use to take advantage of. We're always, we're all, a lot of photographers think if I go elsewhere, uh, they'll have better opportunities to photograph them in their own backyard. Did you have that same sort of sentiment, or did you recognize what you had in in the part of Italy where you live? Oh no, exactly. Uh, I'm, uh, I always think that the grass over there is greener, <laughs> <laughs> so to speak. So I don't shoot much in my own backyard, so to speak. Uh, and I realized that some time ago. I was talking with some friends about. Um, selling art, selling prints and stuff like that. And they told me, well, you, you should really look into the local market because that, that's where you have the, the biggest chance of selling. You should shoot local landscapes, monuments, stuff like that, and then go sell it to hotels, restaurants, uh, local organizations and so on because they need those kind of images. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, I'll try to create an album of my best local shots and, and see what I have got. And then I, I realized that I have I had very little. Really, I had very little. I don't know why, but it's, uh, it's as you said, we, we always think that uh, somewhere else it's, uh, it's more beautiful, it's better, and, and so on. Have you gotten better in being able to recognize, you know, the photo opportunities in your area now that you've had to sort of think of it in, in terms of... Uh, a practical nature in terms of your, uh, your the professional side of your photography, or do you find that that it's hard to do? Uh, it's still hard to do, but I'm I'm trying. Uh, I'm trying to like earlier. I would not just think, try to think of opportunities to to go shoot, and now I I try to to think of uh, like to plan a shoot, like that. Just to give you an example. Um, uh, where I live, I live in a, a big plain, but we are on on the north side. We are, I live in north northern part of Italy. In the north side, we are surrounded by the Alps, and especially in winter, uh, when the Alps are uh, white from the snow, uh, and you have those clear days. That, that happens in typically in winter when you have wind. You have a very crisp, clear atmosphere. So you can see the Alps from like 200 kilometers away. Mm-hmm. So I knew that going to a specific place, using a long lens, I could frame a village with a castle on top of a hill with the mountains, with the Alps in the background. Something that I would never have thought of doing, but then I, I did my research like, like I do when I go somewhere else. When I go somewhere else, I will typically do research. I see, okay, where I can go shoot? Where is the sun going to set? Where is the moon going to rise from? What can I frame it with? And, and this time I, I did this locally, 
just to get that shot. And it was was like 20 minutes drive. So I hit myself and I said, why haven't haven't I done this earlier? Mm. Because it was so close. Well, tell me some of those those specific things that you do when you research, because you know you've traveled in the states, you've traveled to Morocco and Asia. Um, tell me about some of the, the the research that you do, and what some of, and what are some of the resources that you use in order to be prepared when you do arrive at your destination. Um, most in most cases, I will do some some search online. I will do searches on Flickr uh, on five hundred px. I will use, uh, I'm sure you know, the application Stack on Earth by Trey Radcliffe mm-hmm. that is available for tablets and, and phones, which gives you a map with all the photos that people took from those places. So this is a part of the research I do, trying to find great photos and find the exact location where they were taken. Um, I will normally use, depending on the, on the situation, I will use apps that tell me uh, things like um, uh, direction and times of uh, sunset, sunrise, moonset, moonrise, and so on. Um, and, and sometimes I will just just go and, uh, and, and try to find something. I mean, sometimes it's most of the times I try to plan in advance. At least uh, I wasn't. If you want to to, to hear that uh, this episode when I was in uh, in Greece uh, last summer. Uh, we were just with the family and some friends on a beach. I said I was a bit bored, and I said, "What, what can I shoot here?" So I brought out my iPad. I said, "Oh, this is going to be the full moon is going to rise tonight. So let's see which direction the moon is going to rise from where we are." And I said, "Okay, if I move a little bit farther to my right, then I will see the moon rise behind that island in the middle of the bay, which has a church." on it. So I will get a moonrise at dusk beyond behind the island with the church that is will lit up uh, with artificial lights at, at dusk. So I researched the position and I got that shot which was just perfect. Funny thing, we went to a restaurant. I was with the family so I said, well, what I'm going to do with the family while we are out taking the shot and luckily just close to where I had decided my spot was there was a restaurant with uh, an open veranda. Oh, that's So nice. we had dinner there, and me and my friend put up our tripods just outside the restaurant, waiting for the moon to rise. And the other people in the restaurant were looking at us and thinking, well, what are those guys doing? Why are they putting up tripods outside the restaurant? And then they saw the moon rise, and I was rushing out to take photos, and they understood. So that was a just... Planned uh, like a couple hours in advance. Yeah. Well, that research is really important if you want to take advantage of the the light in the morning and uh, in the late afternoon and the evening. Uh, how about the middle of the day? Do, are you more sort of spontaneous uh, during the day or does that sort of thoughtful planning apply as well for um, for the bulk of the, of the daylight that you have available to you? No. Um, the thing is, uh, when I'm, uh, most of the time, not not always, um, I take photos when I'm traveling. And I travel mainly f- for two reasons. One is work, because my job sends me abroad, as you said. I've been to the U.S. The last two times I've been to the U.S., it's, it's me for work. Mm-hmm. 
or I go on vacation. And when I go on vacation, I'm with the family. So during the day, there isn't much time to, to take photos. So I usually uh, reserve time for the golden hour or the blue hour, mm-hmm. right at dawn or uh, sunset or dusk and stuff like that. I don't, if I take photos during the day, it's because I'm, maybe I'm uh, walking in some tourist place with the family or uh, just doing a photo walk with friends. And I know the light is not going to be the best. Maybe you have uh, blue skies, high contrast and so on. I will just maybe take some snapshot of the city, mm-hmm. something and say, okay, if something good comes out of it, fine. Otherwise, I'm, I'm not worried. Yeah, because it's, I think that's one of the challenges that anyone has, especially when they're photographing with family, is striking that balance between making sure the wife and the kids are, are happy as mm-hmm. well as you having ample time to really take advantage of, of the light. I know it was a challenge for me when I was first in the first early years of my marriage because uh, I just wanted to be photographing, and my wife was like, uh, we just didn't take this trip for you to take pictures. So, <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I might get up before dawn to go to go someplace to, to shoot the sunrise mm-hmm. without, when I'm with my family, and, and they will be fine with that because I will be back for, for breakfast at the hotel. Uh, the only thing that my wife doesn't like is that I, I, I have to get up and I will usually wake her up. Mm. So she might not be able to get back to, to get sleep again. So she will complain, ah, you woke me up this morning at six <laughs> and you went out and I was not able to catch sleep again. That, that's, the only, that's the only thing. But then we are together most of the day and if I can find a sunset location, like you said, that was close to a restaurant, and I said, we should have dinner here. Yeah. <laughs> and now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsors. Today, the world is literally in the palm of your hand. Whether it's a laptop, a tablet, or a smartphone, these devices serve as the means by which you communicate, research, and share. And when it comes to your imagery, a website is the best way for you to share your passion for photography. Unlike many other photo sharing sites, Squarespace provides you the way to have complete control over the look and feel of your site as well as your photographs on all of these devices. Squarespace allows you to develop your own voice as a photographer by allowing you to control the design of your website or even your own logo. Find out for yourself by taking advantage of their 14-day free trial. You don't need a credit card, just create an account and go for it. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME to get 10% off and to show your support for the show. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. But well, one of the things I like about your travel pictures is that you you create some really beautiful landscapes, but you also pay attention to to people, mm-hmm. and that for me is often what's missing from so many people who want to do travel photography. They'll take locations of buildings, of landscapes, and things, but you never see any people. And but you do both equally well. Tell us about the importance of people in in your photographs so when i 
started out um, taking photos seriously or semi-seriously, I thought of myself as uh, exclusively a landscape photographer. I said to myself, I'm not a people shooter. I will not shoot people and don't know how to interact with people and so on. But then, then I realized yeah, that, that something was missing and that taking photos of people was adding uh, interest to, to a story. I wanted to build a story with my photos, go to a place and not just shoot the landscape, but show aspects of the, the culture, the, uh, the traditions, the, the dress, the, the clothes, whatever. So I thought to myself, I, I need to, to start to shoot more people and uh, to include them in, in my stories. And I, I found out that it was not just, uh, maybe not easy, but most of the time it was fun to do. It, it was more interesting, uh, interacting with somebody alive. It was not just a rock. <laughs> mm-hmm. So and I, I'm sure you know, let's... Last year, I did this project that was uh, called a Stranger Day. So I forced yeah. myself every day to go out and ask some people to, can I please take your portrait? And so that, that helped me a lot to, uh, to get rid of some of my natural shyness and get more comfortable interacting with, uh, with people to the point that I was uh, this spring in Morocco and... Uh, Moroccan people are not keen to be photographed. They, they don't. They don't like you to take their picture generally. And so I had to to go to this gentleman, an elderly gentleman, and speak to him in French. And I don't speak French. I, I assure you, I can just say four words in French and talk to him in French and say, "S'il vous plaît, please, can I, can I take your photo?" And so he said yes, and I took his photo and of his wife. And we started a conversation with my poor French, and in the end, he invited all of us to his to his house to have dinner. <laughs> it was, oh, it was wow. just amazing. What did you find you learned specifically in terms of doing that stranger a day um, exercise? What what skills did you develop as a result of of putting yourself in a situation where you had to shoot a stranger every day? Uh, in terms of photography skills, not really. I mean, it's not difficult. That my aim was not to take the best portrait possible, so I just applied some uh, uh, basic notions about portraiture that I had. Like, okay, make sure that the light is is good, is soft. You don't have harsh shadows. Uh, if it's uh, high noon, put the people in the open shade. Um, use a, a good composition, try to make them look natural and so on. Not, not, not really difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difficult part, of course, is uh, forcing yourself to uh, override the fear of, of rejection. The hardest part is the fear of rejection. Going to somebody and ha- being afraid that they will say no. I know it's completely irrational, but you cannot just, you cannot help it, right? You are afraid. I am afraid of rejection. If I go and ask that person, can I please take your photo, and they say no, I will be embarrassed. That's what I, I thought. That's what I had in my mind, that fear. But yeah, I forced myself to overcome that. I cannot say that it's uh, it's been completely successful. I still have that fear, mm. irra- completely irrational fear. 
but I try to force myself to, to do it anyway. And I said, I think worst that can happen is that they say no. So, well, <laughs> let's just do it. Yeah. You've got some, I was looking at your images in Morocco and you have some really wonderful images in there. Uh, the one I really like is the one of uh, the barbershop. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that shot? Um, that was uh, completely, uh, that was shot from a hip, basically. Oh, was it? okay. So I, I that, that, that was what I was telling you earlier, that people in Morocco don't like their picture to be taken by tourists. If they notice you taking their picture, they will say no, they will shout at you. Not, not always, but often. Mm-hmm. Right, it's it's not the same in Europe. It's a bit different. Uh, most of the people are fine with that. In Morocco, they are reserved. It's different. I mean, I don't want to, to judge. So, uh, it was difficult for me to to raise the camera to my eye and and shoot people because the, you either ask, and they would might say yes or no, mm-hmm. or uh, if you want to take a candid photo, you don't just bring the camera to your eye and shoot because they will get upset. So I, I, I shot many pictures from the hip without being trying not to be noticed. So I was just walking down that an alley and uh, in the evening, and there was that, that shop, barber shop, with a guy uh, shaving and a, another customer. Mm-hmm. They were who was watching TV. And there was a TV on the wall, and there was light inside of the shop. And I went by, and it was just very nice. Uh, picture of life in a Moroccan city. That's, that's very typical there. You have the, all those shops, barber shops or craft shops or, or anything that they just open on the street and you can always see inside. And it, they're very small. So that, that's the kind of situation. It's typically representative of that country. Mm-hmm. Did you find that what, what skills that you practice as a landscape photographer helped you with respect to the images that you made in in your travel work, not just the of obviously the the landscape work, but your overall work in general, whether they include people or not. Oh, that's a tough question. Just maybe paying attention to to the light and to composition, um, being aware of what is. Uh, in your frame, and what should be and what should not be in your frame. I think that that's the most important part. Mm-hmm. So being able to recognize when you have extraneous elements in your frame that should not be there, that are just a distraction. So compose so that the photo uh, only contains what it must contain and nothing else. And that is a skill that takes time to acquire because... When you look through your viewfinder and you have a main subject, you tend to focus on the subject and you fail to realize what is at the edges of the frame. And I think that is a skill that when you are shooting a landscape, you have the time to really think about that. But that is something that you have to make a part of your vision of, the, of when you look through the, the viewfinder, you need to be immediately aware of that. So when you have a situation like a street photo, something that happens on the street uh, and you don't have to time to set down your tripod and really think about your composition. You need to be aware 
of everything that is at the edges of your frame and decide whether you want to include that or not. I think that that's the most important. Yeah, considerations about aperture, shutter speed, direction of light, and so on are important, but uh, they, they come after. Yeah, that's one of the things that I, I really emphasize whenever I'm teaching people is taking ownership of the frame, especially uh, along the edges of the frame, because that's usually where the intrusions and the distractions uh, appear, uh, usually after the fact, which is a bit too late. Um, and and I think that being able to translate that sort of practice from you know shooting landscapes when you, like you said, have the leisure of time uh, and to be able to apply that when you're only having a fraction of a second to compose your shot is absolutely critical, but it makes you a better photographer. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's hard. You, you still make mistakes. <laughs> uh, the thing is that you don't, you learn to recognize your mistakes and you don't show them. I was used to, I started like 10 years ago using Flickr and I would upload everything to Flickr. Then I became selective. Like I, I learned to, to distinguish a, a good shot from a not so good one and not hide that one, mm-hmm. not, not show that, that. <laughs> only show my, what I think is my best work. So tell me how, about you developing that sensibility in terms of what of, of your work is the exceptional work that you want to share. Um, it's really hard to develop that skill in isolation. So what allowed you to develop that skill so that you were better able to discern which of your which which of your photographs are deserving of attention from the public and which other images just should just stay in your hard drive? What allowed you to become a better editor is what I'm asking. Uh, I don't think I'm a good editor. I'm, I really struggle to to edit my photos. I've been just asked by a friend who has a a gallery to do an exhibition and I should do a very tough selection of my photos to show them and I'm I'm really at a, at a loss how to do that so I'm I, I'm not a good editor uh, that said I think that it's something that you develop um, over time by one looking at the work of others of masters so that, that's why having all those photography books I think helped me uh, looking at the work of others and looking at their work also in context, uh, not just uh, isolated examples, but look at the the whole body of work of a photographer and understanding their vision, where they come from, their style, their signature, um, and see what, what works and, and what doesn't. And in part, uh, interacting with people, with other photographers online, looking at their work and, and getting and sharing critiques, which is something that is, uh, can be dangerous mm-hmm. in a way, because if you go online, I was discussing this with some people the other day on a forum, and I said, oh, I'm sharing these photos, what, what do you think, uh, can you give me a critique? And the first thing I, I told him was, don't go online on a random forum and ask for critique, because you will get hundred different opinions and they will, 99 of them will be wrong or different between yeah. them. So just get critiques from people you trust and they will help you see, uh, see better and see things that you would not normally see in your own photos. 
No, so it's a matter of interacting with your peers, whether they are living peers or dead peers. I mean, I can look at photos of Ansel Adams and get uh, education from them. So where did you find that community for yourself? Was it largely online or did you have a community in in your own part of the world that you found that you found? Helpful? No, it was largely online. Yeah, I don't don't have much of a in-person interaction with local photographers here. Mm-hmm. I have some I had some in-person interactions with people that I met online and then we organized photo trips or entire weekends of photography together. Like we have this group of people we met on Google Plus and now it's been the third year. We went to Berlin, we went to England, we went to Ireland this year. So we meet for a weekend and we go out shooting. Um, we that That's when I have my real life interaction with... Uh, Real people, if you will. And, and, and is that revolved around Google+, Twitter, Facebook, Flickr? Where, where exactly did you find the most viable community for yourself? Absolutely Google+. Okay. Yes. Uh, since I started using it, you know, it was uh, just uh, like every other photographer was joining and being active on Google+, at the beginning. And if you were there from the beginning... Almost all the relationships I developed with photographers that I now talk regularly to or collaborate with and collaborating with some sites and doing stuff online, uh, I met them on Google+. All of them. Mm. It's so hard these days with all the advances in camera technology and in software to keep up. I know it all too well, and my work revolves around the industry. That's why I depend on lynda.com to be my resource for keeping up to speed, not only on all things photographic, but also for video, audio, and business. It's the one destination that I've come to trust for my continuing education, and the best thing is that I can use it anywhere, be it at home or when I'm on the road. You can experience this for yourself and watch over 2,000 quality videos for free for a limited time. I've worked out a special deal with lynda.com to provide you with unlimited access to the entire library for free for 10 days. Visit lynda.com forward slash the candid frame to use it for that time. That's lynda.com forward slash the candid frame to start your 10 day free trial and help support the show. That, that's something that I've not really taken advantage of. I, I got in on the beginning, but just like practically every other social network, I didn't know how to really take advantage of it. I, I Sometimes I feel very socially inept, whether it's in front of a computer or not. But um, what what do you feel allows you to take advantage of that particular social network and and have that dialogue? What what For people who are in involved in Google Plus or not familiar with it, what what do you feel people need to do in order to take best best advantage of it, especially with regards to building a photo community? Uh, okay, so first of all, start following uh, as many people as you can. Uh, on Google Plus, you can follow at most 5,000 people, mm-hmm. which looks like a lot, but you have circles, so you can put 
people in different circles. Like you can, I have a circle for landscape photographers, for uh, wildlife, wedding photographers, for uh, travel magazines. And so you put them in circles so you can uh, only, uh, when you are interested in travel, you know, like in travel magazines, you can only follow those people and look at what they are doing without caring about the others. It's much easier to not be overwhelmed of having about having so many people. Mm-hmm. Uh, second, interact with them, which means uh, comment on their posts, plus one, uh, and show your best work, of course. And when people plus one your work or leave you comments, always uh, say thank you. That will build a lot of rapport with other people. Another thing that Google Plus has and that has helped build really long-lasting friendships uh, is Hangouts, which for people who don't know about Google Plus are basically video chats where you can be up to 10 people at once. And I used to do, and I still do a bit, but I used to do more, a lot of Hangouts with other photographers from all over the world. So we had, when we decided to go to someplace and shoot together, most of us had already met together in video. So we, in a way, we knew each other. Mm. And with Hangouts, the possibility, for instance, of sharing your screens, your screen, there were people and there are still people who are doing Hangouts where they show photos, they critique them, they have a collective critique, they have some discussion about photography and so on. And I'm using Google Plus right now. If you, uh, I'm doing a series of um, interviews. So... Like you, I'm being the interviewer. And this is called the state of mirrorless. And we are doing interviews of, of people who use mirrorless camera systems. Maybe they, they have switched from DSLRs and so on. And by the way, if you want to be one of our guests in one of the next episodes, I'll be happy to have you on, on our show. And we use uh, Google Hangouts. Um, and I do that together with people that I met on Google+. Plus. Oh, I'll be, yeah, I'd be glad to do that. I'm, I'm always uh, eager to talk to, to other photographers. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, on the topic of mirrorless, talk about um, choosing to transition from DSLRs to mirrorless, especially for your travel work. What do you? What have you found to be the advantages of working with um, mirrorless cameras as opposed to DSLRs for the for the type of work that you're doing? Um, of course, one advantage that everybody mentioned is the size and weight of mirrorless cameras. But to be honest, in my case, uh, it's, it's not, was not that much of a factor. Um, because I was using, I was shooting a Nikon D90. And I had some lenses, not the big professional 7200 F2.8 that weighs two kilos. I was not using that kind of, I was using cheaper lenses, lighter. So I was not carrying a lot of weight, honestly. I moved to mirrorless and uh, now I have, uh, instead of having one camera, I have two. Instead of having three lenses, now I have five. So my bag weighs just as much. (laughs) (laughs) Also because I have a bag and when I travel, I say, okay, whatever fits in the bag goes in the bag. If I have smaller cameras, instead of having one camera, I will have two. I have not reduced my weight when I travel at all. 
So it was not just, it was not a matter of weight. To me, uh, the, the thing went like that. I had this D90. I was pretty happy with it. I was thinking maybe I should upgrade to a full frame camera to get better image quality and so on. Or maybe get a D7000, which is a bit better than mine. But then I said, okay, I'm, if I upgrade, I will take the same photos that I'm taking now. I want a different kind of camera. And at the time, everybody was talking about the Fujis. Everybody was waxing enthusiastically about the X100S. And I have to admit, I had read too much. Zach Arias and David Hobby were saying the X100S is the new Leica. It's the best camera ever. Mm-hmm. So I said, maybe I should get myself an X100S. So I did. And I took a trip with the D90 and the X100S. And then I ended up putting the D90 on the tripod and maybe waiting for the light. And while I was waiting for the light to take that one shot with the DSLR, I would take 100 shots with the X100S. Or I would put it in my pocket when I was walking around in the city. And I said, hmm, quality is great. It's pocketable, almost pocketable. And it's different. I can use this in a different way that I'm used to do with my DSLR. So I started using that more. And when it came time to upgrade, instead of upgrading the DSLR, I got a Fuji XE2 so I could have more bigger choice of lenses. And since you've been um, been doing that, um, did you find any noticeable change in terms of your approach to shooting? I take more photos and I take different photos. It's not just when I'm um, taking a classical landscape, uh, I'll be on the, on the tripod. Even though I, now I have a good uh, live view display on the back of my camera, I will use the viewfinder just because I'm used to it. So that, that, that didn't change a lot. But I will use the, especially the X100S to just go around, put the camera on the tripod. And I, just another example, I was on um, uh, Canyonlands National Park last spring. I was at Mesa Arch, that, that is this location that everybody goes to shoot. And there were like 20 photographers there waiting for sunrise. Mm-hmm. So I put my uh, XE2 with my wide-angle lens on the tripod, waited for the sun to rise, and then I started the snapping shots around uh, with the X100S with its fixed 23-millimeter lens. And in the end, the best photo I got was from the, the small Fuji X100S. Or I, do, I started doing street photography. I would probably not have done street photography without that camera. We were talking earlier about uh, photographing in your own backyard and, and not being as attentive about it. But you've traveled to the United States, which is my mm-hmm. backyard. And uh, I was wondering what your experience is coming here to the States um, in terms of photographing. What, um, what, you know, what appeals to you about coming out here to, to photograph? Um, mm-hmm. it's, it'd be kind of interesting to see how someone from outside of the States takes perspective well, on, 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 on what we offer here. For me, the, the landscapes of the, the Southwest are equal to none. I mean, I was, uh, my last trip to the U.S., I was in Salt Lake City because I had a conference there. The conference was finished on the Thursday, 
And I rented a car, drove down to Moab, and I spent three days there. And it was like just being uh, in, a, in a playground. It was like you know, a kid in a toy store. Mm. Because everywhere I turned, there was a, a gorgeous landscape. So to me, that, that part of the world is number one. Maybe when I go to Iceland or someplace like that, I will have a different opinion. But to me, that, that part of the world is number one. And I also love uh, the, the American cities in terms of uh, architecture and uh, street life. And I love New York. I love taking photos in New York, both street photography and architectural cityscapes. I mean, the cityscapes of the U.S. are the, the most interesting in the world, probably. We don't have anything like that in Italy. Uh, yeah, well, we have different cityscapes. We have the medieval cities with cobblestones and red roofs and so on, which are beautiful, but in a, in a different way. I see them every day. They don't turn me on as much. Mm. I think that's a challenge for any photographer is being able to take the things that are so familiar to us and try to make them extraordinary in, in a photograph. I, exactly. Yeah. I, you know, anything that's different is is exotic. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and tell me a little about uh, the the workshops that you you're offering. Uh, so we really recently started uh, this uh, enterprise together with a friend. So I, I mentioned we were in Greece last summer. And this friend, together with this friend of mine, and this friend of mine is a big connoisseur of Greece. He's been there like 12 times. And he's a photographer too. So I told him, why, why don't we combine my uh, attitude of, of, to education, to teaching, because I also do training in my daytime job, with your knowledge of Greece, and we try to, to combine the two and offer something that will combine... Uh, of, we'll, we'll give people the opportunity to visit some of these beautiful Greek islands and to take photos and have to have some photo education. So we launched this uh, initiative, uh, this enterprise that is called Mediterranean Photo Tours. We are started by offering a um, one-week workshop in the Cycladis Islands, uh, Santorini and Milos, which are some of the most beautiful Greek islands. Uh, on um, And this will be next uh, autumn uh, from September 23 to September 29. And we have a website there. It's called mediterraneanphototours.com. You can go there and uh, just uh, have a look at the program. And if you find it interesting, people can sign up for it and be our guests on this uh, adventure. Well, my, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And they can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Uh, I would like to name a photographer whose most recent book, my last, my latest book purchase uh, was uh, by Art Wolf, mm -hmm. uh, who is a landscape, nature, wildlife, travel, people photographer of well, master been around for many years and he just published this book which is about a summary of his uh, body of work this is magnum opus if you want it's a huge thick coffee table book that is just very few words full of gorgeous photography and what i like about art wolf of course he's a master i mean 
visually, photographically, uh, he's at the top. Uh, he's a con conservationist and he's very passionate, passionate about conservation. And you see that in his photography because he has an empathy towards his subjects, be they landscapes, nature, forests, animals, or people. You see the same empathy throughout all of his work. And it's just amazing to look at. And where can people go to find out more about you and, and your work? Uh, I can be found uh, on my website. Main website is uh, ucphoto.me. That's uh, UC, like my initials, photo, P-H-O-T-O dot me. Uh, I have my portfolio there. I have a link to my blog where I'm mostly active. Uh, people can find me on uh, Google+, Plus, as I said, with my name, easy to find. Uh, I'm a bit on Facebook, not much. I'm a bit on Twitter. I'm on Flickr. I'm on 500px. I'm on Instagram. Everywhere with my name. Oh, you got to cover it. Find me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ugo, thank you so much for uh, for making the time for me this evening. I really appreciate it. It was a real pleasure. Uh, it was a pleasure for me to to be your guest today. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the show. The Candid Frame is brought to you by the generous contributions of listeners like you. To help support the work we do at TCF, please take the time to make a donation via PayPal for $10, $20, $50, or more. Your contributions have helped to make the show what it is. I'd also like to thank our audio engineer, Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com, and our music is provided by Kevin McLeod whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.